probably the aspect that differentiates us, you know, the fact that the, the actual expression of the emotions is needed in order to have the person uh, get better. The person has to make contact with the emotion and then express it. Because the truth is nowadays there are so many different forms of therapies and many of them talk about the same things we talk about. There is a lot of body-mind medicine and the uh, breathing, the use of respiration and what they call now mindfulness. And many things are very understandable for us. They, they sound like what we do. But I think the two things that are missing are you know, one is the focus on a character and how the person defends from uh, negative emotions, and the other one is the, the actual expression of uh, emotions when the, the right time comes. Welcome to In Contact with the ACO. I'm Dr. Chris Burrett. Each month, we feature a case presentation, interview, or discussion by one or more of our doctors who practice a different kind of psychiatry. We are interested in your questions and comments, and I would love to hear your feedback. Send an email to aco.orgonomy.org or use a link in the show notes. If you're interested in attending one of our webinar presentations, you can meet the doctors and join in on discussion afterwards. You can connect with us and learn more at a different kind of psychiatry.com or organomy.org. This episode features a case by Dr. Salvatore Iacobello, who treats a hospitalized adolescent girl and achieves remarkable results with just brief interventions. Following the presentation, I joined Dr. Iacobello for a great discussion with the audience. In the hospital, one Monday morning, the nurse in charge of the adolescent ward reported to me that one of the adolescent girls had been observed participating and being more talkative during group activities. She was less sad, was taking better care of her personal appearance by wearing some makeup and dressing in bright colored clothes for the first time since her arrival a week earlier. These changes surprised the hospital staff who had frequent contact and interaction with this girl. She had, in fact, been very depressed and refractory to all attempts made to help her during the course of her hospitalization. As the attending physician, I too was surprised. I wondered if the antidepressant medication that I had prescribed a few days earlier could have brought about such a dramatic improvement. Such an early response would have been unusual. I considered the possibility that this patient was becoming hypomanic or even manic. However, this did not appear to be the case as the girl was not euphoric or elated. Furthermore, she didn't exhibit pressured speech 
or raising thoughts, and she was cooperative and appropriate in her behavior. The patient, a 12-year-old girl who I would call Stephanie, had been hospitalized because of suicidal, suicidal ideations and auditory hallucinations. I was familiar with Stephanie from a prior hospitalization a month earlier. At that time, she was also depressed, had suicidal thoughts, and was hearing voices. During the hospitalization, the medications I had prescribed were only somewhat helpful, as manifested by the disappearance of her suicidal thoughts. Otherwise, her depression was only slightly improved. Ultimately, I had discharged Stephanie with the recommendation that she continue outpatient treatment in a partial hospitalization program. Unfortunately, Stephanie did not do well in the program and required hospitalization again. Second hospitalization, Stephanie's clinical condition appeared worse. When I met her, she looked sad and hopeless. She spoke only a few words and could not interact with me. There was a feeling of heaviness around her. Her face was immobilized with an expression of misery. Her eyes were empty and lacked any sparkle. As she sat on the chair in front of me, she kept her eyes downcast and her shoulders hunched over. She spoke slowly and in a weak voice. Her movements were slow. She was unkempt and dressed in dark, neutral, colored clothes. Energetically, she was in a state of contraction, which resulted primarily in immobilization and, secondarily, in deep depression. Stephanie told me that she had become suicidal after some of her peers at school had made fun of her. I realized she had little insight, indeed no way of comprehending, that the return of her hopelessness and hallucinations resulted from a severe contraction of her bioemotional system that followed being ridiculed by her classmates. After evaluating Stephanie, I placed her on medications. One week went by, but she showed no improvement. She continued to appear sad, avoiding interaction with her peers and spending most of her time alone in her room. She remained unkempt and poorly groomed. The sense of hopelessness remained, remained deeply rooted in her and spreading to those around her. Nurses, therapists and mental health workers in daily contact with her. I understood the bioemotional basis of Stephanie's clinical condition and knew that she needed a more active intervention than just medication. At the end of the week, on Friday afternoon, 
I made time for a session with Stephanie in my office. I briefly talked to her and then asked her to breathe deeply and let herself go. It seemed as if she had a bandage wrapped tightly around her chest and was breathing against a strong resistance. This inhibition of respiratory movement is present in all depressed patients. It is a sign of armoring of the chest. When it is present, there is a decrease of the energy level of all the organisms, with resulting immobilization. From this observation, it follows that one of the most important interventions in the treatment of a depressed patient is the re-establishment of full respiration as soon as possible. Stephanie was able to cooperate with my efforts. Here I need to point out that cooperation with treatment is a very positive factor in determining the patient's prognosis. Most often, the adolescents admitted to a psychiatric hospital are very angry, defiant, and rebellious, particularly toward authority figures. This attitude can make it more difficult for psychiatrists to reach the patient and be of help. With Stephanie, it was clear that she was willing to make the effort to participate. She recognized her suffering, wanted to be helped, and was reaching out from the depth of her depression. Because Stephanie's face was mask-like, with dull eyes and a sad expression, I decided to focus first on mobilizing her face with the intention of relaxing the facial muscles and reducing the state of emotional contraction. I asked her to make faces and to try moving her forehead. After some initial reluctance, she began to move her face, but she could not move her forehead. The inability to move her forehead was a sign that she was more emotionally held in a ocular segment. In the attempt to decrease the tension in her forehead and face, I asked Stephanie to open her eyes as wide as she could and then to close them tightly while at the same time breathing deeply. She could do this only with great difficulty. I noticed that when she closed her eyes, her face took an expression of someone crying. She did not, however, perceive this or any associated emotion. Immobilization, in fact, also decreases the capacity to perceive emotions. On the positive side, Stephanie could look around the room and also focus on my finger and follow it as I moved it back and forth in front of her eyes. These interventions did much to bring some expression in her eyes. When I felt that some emotional excitation, small was present, I told Stephanie to open her eyes wide and to yell out. She emitted a high-pitched scream. 
yet she could not keep her eyes open wide at the same time. When I felt Stephanie had done enough, I told her to stop and rest. A few minutes later, I asked her how she felt. She said she felt calmer. This was the single therapy session which had preceded the sudden, unexplained, marked change in Stephanie's mood and behavior described earlier. Encouraged by Stephanie's dramatic improvement, I saw her again for another session three days later. Stephanie reported that she was feeling better and that the first session had relaxed her. I worked again with her as I had at the previous session, asking her to breathe deeply and move her face into different emotional expressions. This time it was easier for Stephanie to breathe. She could also move her face with greater ease and emotionally connect more. Throughout the session I maintained constant emotional contact with Stephanie by talking to her, focusing her attention on what she was feeling, and emotionally asking her to look at me. This is a point that needs to be stressed. The patient has to be in emotional contact as much as possible with the therapist, with what he or she, the patient, is feeling at that moment, and with his or her surroundings. In the absence of this conduct, the above described, described interventions become mechanical and meaningless. By connecting emotionally with the therapist, patients acquire again awareness of their deeper emotions. This point cannot be overemphasized. In the second session, instead of a high-pitched scream, Stephanie was able to yell loudly with more intensity and emotional involvement than the first time. I saw again the crying expression on her face when she closed her eyes, but she still was not emotionally connected with this emotion. At the end of the session, I told Stephanie that she would be going home the following day and I wished her good luck. The next day, I saw Stephanie as she was leaving the hospital. She was wearing a red shirt and her hair had been carefully combed and styled. She looked brighter and for the first time, I saw Stephanie smile. So I wanted to hear what you think, how you feel after hearing that case. What struck you? What stood out? I, I like the connection between something physical, uh, helping to trigger a loosening up of it, something emotional. Not that I know much about the field, but it, that seemed to me make, to make just very good sense. You know, expecting some sort of a physical reaction. I thought to make a connection. Mm -hmm. I guess what I'd like to speak to is that it seems so incredible. It's not just what you do, it's your connection with the patient. I'm always a little stirred up by 
It's the emotional contact with the therapist that is the big piece. It's not just what you do, it's the contact which you kind of spoke to at the end. Yeah, I think, I think this is a, a, a very important point, and that's why I write about it in the article. I wanted to stress that point. And uh, I think usually uh, the interaction with the therapist is neglected, but I think through the time uh, with a lot of experience, one realizes that probably that's the most important thing in the therapeutic process. Otherwise, it's mechanical. Right, there is no substitute for that. Right. Yeah. Question then, because when you said you told her that she would be leaving the next day, my heart went, oh, <laughs> that you, she had a relationship with you and she just she left the next day. Was there any continuing of that relationship that you had with her or that was just yeah, the end of it? I think that's, that's a very good observation. You see, unfortunately, in these hospitals, you don't have uh, much control uh, in the treatment, and uh, the decision uh, to stay or not to stay is uh, only small percentage. Uh, only small percentage depends on the doctor, but you know, between insurances and hospitals, they decide when the patient. Uh, is, can go over and they, you know what's going to happen so that that's why I think that's a, a unique experience uh, and that's why I wanted to, to write about it uh, so I had that opportunity to to relieve uh, her symptoms but indeed she was not fully under my care once she was discharged I didn't see her any longer there was not much I could do I was going to add that sometimes in the modern psychiatric practice, probably what he did besides just helping her symptomatically there is give her hope that she could find someone else like Dr. Iacobello when she followed up with an outpatient, that there was somebody who heard her, who understood her. So when you're working in outside of a private practice uh, for an institution, sometimes that's what you're doing. Yeah, but in this case, it was not possible for me to do that for many reasons, I, I think she was in another area. Mm -hmm. And she also depended on her grandmother. So it was not that possible. But the other unique thing about this is that this cannot happen any longer in, the, in these hospitals. Mm -hmm. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't do this nowadays mm -hmm. because the way the hospitals have changed, it wasn't good at that time, but now it's much worse. So the, the position of, of the doctor is now completely organized by the system of care they have in place. So they expect you to do what they want you to do. Outside that, you, you, cannot, do, you cannot do anything else. Doctor, uh, how, did, how did you come into cut? What was the context of you coming in, in contact with this young person? Were, were you working at that hospital? Or? Yeah, I was working at that hospital. I, I have worked uh, a lot for hospitals. So this was years ago when I was actually working a, about full-time for this hospital. 
And she was admitted there. And then she came for the second time. And usually, I don't always was using the therapy sessions with the patient, but in her case, I felt that I needed to do something because the suffering was so clear. Thank you. And when was it? What was the time frame? How long ago was it? I think that that should have been, I wrote that around maybe 201, 202. So in, in about, say, 20 years, you have found that the system has changed a lot? Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's changed a lot because it has become much more regulated. Uh, physicians' independence has been uh, reduced to the minimum. Mm. And that's already was happening. So psychiatrists do not do therapy in a psychiatric hospital, or even if, if they're hired to work for a clinic. That I think it's probably zero. Maybe it's 99% uh, that don't. But uh, no one would hire psychiatrists to do therapy. Um, it's all about the medications. And medications are a helpful tool, as I think most of us recognize, but uh, it's not everything, and that's part of what we're here to say. I have a question. Sure. Dr. Acovello, uh, when she was released, was she also released with medication, or did she not need it? Yeah, she was, she was she released was okay. with the new medication that I had given to her. That you had given to her. Okay. Yeah. Did you have a sense of, um, so she was going back to, with her family? She was, yeah, she was going back to uh -huh. her grandmother. Uh, I, now I don't remember the details, yeah. but the, her parents were not available to her. The grandmother was raising her. There was all that background that was certainly contributing to her yeah. situation. That's you know? what comes to mind is, you know, what was the situation? Yeah. You know, here you treated her and now she's going back to her yeah, she family. Yeah, she was in a different situation, yeah. 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 There yeah. were visual or no auditory hallucinations, correct? Yeah. Yeah, and what do you attribute that to? And it, they didn't look to be to be uh, the main problem. Uh -huh. They looked to be more secondary to to the depression and the you know. A, in fact, they they disappeared. The, they were not the the main mm -hmm. complaint. Mm -hmm. You know, and that happens many times that people who are depressed can have uh, hallucinations, but then uh, you don't necessarily need to treat them with, with the medications. You know, they once they get better, the hallucinations also uh, disappear at the subside. Mm -hmm. One thing I wanted to point out, which is um, the problem we have is trying to help people understand this type of therapy is uh, sometimes something so simple can do so much, which I think is why you're even surprised, <laughs> you know? Yeah, right. What happened yeah. here, um, you had a brief intervention with her, but it really stood out how much changed for her, how much yeah. better she felt. My understanding, and maybe you can elaborate, um, was that um, being comfortable with you to be able to express and shout and uh, just even show with her face a little bit by relaxing it and then showing that sad face gave her some relief even if she's not able to say you know that's what helped me that's my understanding of, of what you did for her yeah I think that's what it is and then she started to move 
because uh, she was very immobilized and the immobilization is a, a sign of uh, depression and once it, it results from the fact that many emotions are being held back so once one starts to move things there is movement that the person can feel better and that happens many times after a session somebody when I ask how do you feel they will say oh, I feel relieved and nobody <coughs> has ever told them what's what's that about but that's the answer I get many, many times and my understanding is that each patient may take something else to help them get moving so in this case it, it sounded like she needed to feel like she could trust you and feel comfortable mm -hmm to express herself or someone else that may be something else that blocks them from feeling comfortable to finally move again. Mm -hmm. Doctor, did you feel that she was like very hungry for that kind of connection that maybe she wasn't getting that somewhere? You think she, you know, she lived in a difficult home situation being raised by a grandparent? Yeah, no, I, I, I don't mean that was a feat, an aspect of her presentation. As far as I remember, I didn't write anything about it. She didn't have that hunger or wanting something, but she just was closed in. And it was like she, she had given up. Yeah, that, that's what I remember. Yeah. You said that what precipitated this was her friends and schoolmates making fun of her? Yeah. I mean, would that be enough to trigger this kind of major thing, or was she already on her way? I would say that, yes, yeah, sometimes it, it can be that simple. Sometimes something much more uh, slight than actual overt, you know, criticism or uh, teasing or can uh, have dramatic effects on, on someone. Um, I mean, even going back to when we talk about you know, how your childhood affects you, a lot of times you think especially these days, you think of like physical or sexual abuse, but we know that, you know, a look on someone's face, you know, a parent's disapproving look can have more profound effects than being beaten sometimes. So I would say that effect with the classmates uh, could do that. I could, I could affirm what you've just said, Dr. Wirt. Um, when I was in seventh grade, the print I wore one day my favorite sweater and my favorite skirt. It was a red sweater and a blue full swirl skirt so that when you twirled, it went out. And the principal looked at me in the hallway in front of a bunch of the kids and said that that was a terrible color combination. And I wore brown and black and gray for decades. So color is interesting. Color is stimulating, you know. <laughs> yeah. Here I am. <laughs> and that's interesting that I noted, you know, in, in your, um, that, that after that first session, she was back wearing color again. You know, it's like about out to the world. It's, it's, it's radiating. Yeah. It's like, yeah. you know, yeah. not being ashamed of yourself. And that age, too, is like such a a sensitive age. I was pretty young in my, I was the youngest in my class, um, I, and, and late in puberty. <laughs> um, it's a very sensitive time. 
And yeah, it's it sort of like, you know, somebody just stepping on you and stepping on your life when they step on your color and your, your vibrancy. You know, it's, 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 yeah. it's like saying absolutely no to everything that means anything. Yeah. 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 Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah. Besides the atmosphere of the hospital and the computers and what have you, what do you think is brought about well, I'm beginning to learn and beginning to perceive the change in, in, psych, in psychiatry from, from a counseling or, or, or a relationship standpoint to simply, you know, a, a solution of, you know, of a medicinal solution. Uh, what do you feel has is, is brought the world to this? Because it seems to me we've lost something very valuable. How much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> According to the schedule about uh, 20 minutes. <laughs> Well, the, the basic aspect is that uh, psychiatry has discounted uh, emotions. Mm -hmm. Emotions don't count, they don't exist, they are just a, a manifestation of interactions of molecules. And, <laughs> and they, are, they, they are very uncomfortable with emotions, so the only way they can deal with it is by trying to eliminate them. So the, and you're lucky if it's called a psychiatry department. It's mm -hmm. usually now, I think it was mental health, and now it's pretty much behavioral health. So okay. it's like gotten farther and farther away. Because yeah, even in the treatment of physical disease, it seems to me that the whole medical profession has shifted uh, away from it, it, it's it's diagnosis medication. It's not so you know people obviously there's a brain body connection that I think. You know, people don't in, in the profession don't recognize, or, or maybe even aren't even trained to uh, any longer. And I, that's one of the reasons that I've become kind of interested in what we're talking about here today. Because I mean, how can that not be important? Uh, I mean, brain chemistry is affected by physical pain, and I mean, if there were if there were if there's a nerve connection and you don't feel the physical pain, your brain's not going to react to it. I mean, it just seems so unusual to me in this world in these days that that disconnect has happened. I think there are people who retain the capacity to feel that and to want to do something about it, but then because of the way, you know, the classic thing of you see your primary doctor for five minutes, mm -hmm. so they may want to do more and recognize there's something missing, but because of this, the whole system, it's very difficult. and. Even if you want to fight back and say, I'm going to spend more time, you can only do that so much and so often, you know, uh, before you're a complete outlier and it, it just doesn't work anymore. Yeah, book me for two consecutive appointments so <laughs> Medicare will pay for it. <laughs> <laughs> right, that's the, the system has been built in that way to exclude that possibility, but, you know, I, I think, I, I don't know how many of you are familiar with what we call the emotional plague, but I think that this is a basic manifestation of the emotional plague to try to eliminate any manifestation of emotions, a spontaneous life, and in this way it's like a, a closing closing the door to any possibility of uh, having a different way of feeling and being and being able to be in touch with, with the deeper feelings that I in man. 
yeah, I think that point is very important. So a lot of psychiatrists you'll hear say uh, these mental conditions are brain disease. And the brain is an important organ, but it's not everything. And probably a good way to look at it is where do you feel things? You feel it in your chest or your belly or your genitals. You don't feel anything in your head. Um, so the way we look at it is that your brain integrates your perceptions, um, but it's not that the brain is central. But there's that you know correlation with the way people look at like top-down control of organizations, and that's how people start to look at human beings. But we're not machines, it's just as you saw. I was thinking that it takes a lot of willingness, you know, for this particular patient going into kind of an unorthodox situation of lying down and, yeah. you know, did you sense a willingness or like... No, wait, or, she was, I didn't see her lying down. Oh, okay. Oh, 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 oh yeah. interesting. That, there is a lot just, of things that you can do without any okay. patient laying down. Ah, so she was just sitting in a chair and just... And so it was. It also happened that, that I had a, I had an office that was a little bit isolated from uh, the rest of oh. the or the hospital. <laughs> the, the, there are two doors. There is a, a door that leads to a smaller hall, and then there are two offices there. So. And it was a Friday afternoon, <laughs> so there was not that much. <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's what gave, uh, gave me the opportunity. It's not that I was not doing that in those days. And uh, I think I have written another couple of articles on these experiences. And there might be someone you see for a year before you even talk about, like, oh, what's, why is that there, you know? Um, uh, so yeah, it, it's, um, and then if, you do get to that point in treatment with somebody, um, it's not like it used to be, um, especially if, if someone doesn't isn't aware of uh, doing a different kind of therapy. So that's just another part of that we have to address these days. Yes. But but the, where you have the patient, are you talking about? I'm saying my private practice. In the private practice. Even so, someone who wouldn't be referred, for instance, through the ACO, they don't know me from Adam. I see. Uh, so if I'm explaining how I do things, um, that's another hurdle uh, that may have not been there, you know, a few decades ago mm -hmm. when I was born. Yes, a few, de a few decades before, <laughs> a few decades before, four, <laughs> um, the, um, the organist would have said, lie down. That's just, Go ahead. you know, that's yeah. just what you did. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah. Or even just a therapy couch, you know, one of my uh, residency director, she was psychoanalytically trained, and a lot of times they would also lay on a couch. So that, the therapy couch, isn't even specific uh, to medical ergonomy. Um, that was, you know, Freud and um, mm -hmm. analysis. Was but they're not good. using that in general in psychiatry anymore? Oh, no, not at all. Well, therapy kind of so. Yeah. I get it. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that's... Uh, oh, interesting. And I think that, that gives me the opportunity to make a point, I think, where we are today with, with ergonomy. In some ways, the way 
I see ourselves is like uh, we are the generation who is bringing ergonomy into psychiatry, or at least psychiatry the way it's practiced today. You know, as a, we 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 have that challenge every day, and we we are facing it. So it's you know bringing ergonomy into the psychiatric practice. While in the past it was different, people would come because they wanted a, uh, medical hormone therapy and they, they would be ready, they would be prepared in some way. Uh, we don't have that nowadays uh, because for many reasons that I think that should be another, another presentation. Well, that's why we're here today. <laughs> <laughs> really, a, a, a psychiatric visit where, you know, how, how are you feeling? Is the medication working? And well, how are you feeling? Keyboard, 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 keyboard. Uh, you know, uh, have you been at any fainting spell? Keyboard, 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 keyboard. I mean, that electronic assistant uh, is there always. Uh, and, and, and even recently, in a, a quote, physical examination, I had to wait till the doctor had a uh, a uh, uh, chaperone? The word, a chaperone available, which I didn't ask for, or didn't require, but still, the doctor would not do my. Uh, examination, uh, you know, unless somebody was present. And so what someone is saying is that you don't trust the doctor, <laughs> and the doctor may not trust you. Oh, yeah. Well, that, that's entirely possible. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that's saying something. How can you get medical care if we're already establishing that there's no trust here, that we have to have a third party to be the, the arbiter, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, that's all what's happening in the social scene, that the, the lack of trust and the, the, the paranoia, but that's that's I think can be addressed. You know, it's an aspect of what the social economy addresses. But the point you are making, it's not just that. The point is that the patients themselves they don't expect to be asked any questions by the psychiatrist. Something like this it happened to me. Few days ago, he, he, I agreed to, to do some coverage for in a clinic, in a you know a, a community clinic, and you know, one patient. Uh, I was trying to ask her some questions. She told me, "I didn't like. Why are you asking me this question? I didn't expect to be asking this question." <laughs> okay, at that point. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I actually have two questions. One sure. is, one, who's doing the actual therapy? And two, if this is a different kind of therapy, what makes it different? Two good questions. So generally in a clinic or in a hospital, a lot of times in a hospital it's a group therapy led by a social worker, sometimes a psychologist, depends on the institution. And most outpatient clinics, it's uh, often a social worker or psychologist. And then the question of a different kind of therapy. Now there's probably 500 different types of therapies. It used to be there was therapy, and then there was you know medication or electroconvulsive therapy. But now there's so many different therapies, and CBT is the one that gets the most press, cognitive behavioral therapy. But I think what Dr. Jacobella said was medical organ therapy is focusing on emotional expression, the lack thereof, and what blocks it. So what I heard from Dr. Acabella's case was him perceiving 
what wasn't happening and getting a sense that, for instance, with this patient, it was higher up in her head and her face and her eyes. And what he did was eliminate the block so that her spontaneous flow of emotion could continue. Essentially, medical rhythm therapy, you know, we're calling it a different kind of therapy, is focusing on where is the emotion, how is it being shown, how is it being blocked, and what can we do to reestablish natural flow of emotion. Uh, so that means perception of emotion and expression of emotion. That's brilliant. That's a message that needs to go out there. We're trying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think, you know, considering all the forms of therapy that there are, uh, I think that that's probably the aspect that differentiates us, you know, the fact that the, the actual expression of the emotions is needed in order to have the person uh, get better. Mm -hmm. The person has to make contact with the emotion and then express it. Because the truth is nowadays there are so many different forms of therapies. And many of them talk about the same things we talk about. There is a lot of body-mind medicine and the uh, breathing, the use of respiration and what they call now mindfulness. And many things are very understandable for us. They, they sound like what we do. But I think the two things that are missing are, you know, one is the focus on a character and how the person defends from uh, negative emotions, and the other one is the, the actual expression of uh, emotions when the, the right time comes. So, for instance, the way we're trained is learning that some like you're teaching a patient that they're defending from a painful emotion, and um, then the next step would be how. So, for instance, if there's another therapy that focuses on yelling or breathing. A lot of times that's forcing someone say, breathe, 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 or yell, um, where our job is to eliminate whatever keeps them from yelling in the first place or from being able to have natural breathing. Um, so it's not telling them to do it or forcing them to do it, but eliminating whatever is there that keeps them from just doing it naturally. And those two things are, you know, take years of therapy sometimes. <laughs> that you're defending, and how. Trust. The key trust. It, it is, trust is really key. And, and being able to trust the therapist, that, I, um, it has to do very much with the eyes for the trust to be complete, you know? Um, uh -huh. Do you mean you have to make eye contact? You have to be able to, you have to, it's, it's not just a question of expressing emotion. You're expressing it to a person that you can trust, and you're telling them directly. Right, you know? it's and in, you in the context of the relationship. It's, it's the con, you know, it's sort of like, it, it's sort of like, you know, you can express in a vacuum and the, 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 the therapist is present, but if the patient doesn't have their eyes in contact where where they they're connected with their feeling it, it, it nothing really changes um, it, it, so that, so that it has it has it, you know I mean from, I mean, from whatever the emotion is all the way you know the anger the sadness the 
the longing. Mm-hmm. You know, to, yeah. To say, I think it's a basic I aspect, and I think you are certainly the expression of emotions needs to be qualified uh, in that way. That, so, uh, it's in the context of a therapeutic relationship. So if so, if the therapist, so the therapist has to be healthy to know the difference between when the when the patient is kind of looks like they're there or whether they are because the therapist can feel that the patient is there or not there. Right. Yeah. So if they're uh, you know raging or something, but they're not connected to not, what they're feeling, then right. it does you're nothing. Not, it nothing. You gained. don't get relief from that. No. So you have to stop it and connect them with it rather than just. And they, you see, the presence of the therapist that does it's basic because by you being there and being able to tolerate the emotions, that's giving a strong message to the patient that these you can have emotions. The emotions are not going to destroy you, or you are not going. Your life is not going to end, or you are not going to be overwhelmed. That that's very important, and also the. The meaning is that you will be fine too. Yeah, you you are crying, but there is another person who is tolerating the emotion, who is not freaking out while you're on the person. That's many times it you know it even happens in these psychiatric hospitals. So with this therapist, they they see the patient getting emotional and what, and they 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 get overwhelmed. And then the answer is, go uh, you get to see the psychiatrist, it's more medication. And that could be as simple as, you know, trying to give them tissues every time they're crying, you know, like, like wipe your tears away. Um, they're, not, they're not saying that, but that's what they're communicating, you know. Um, or if they get loud, you know, it's, it becomes a big deal. Um, I just saw a patient in a, uh, where I'm employed, not my private practice, and um, he saw someone like the week before, and he was saying how miserable everything is, the, the world doesn't understand me, and all this very deep um, feelings he had about just, you know, things aren't right with the world, which is true. <laughs> um, and the person who saw him just wanted to make it all better, just to let him know that, you know, things were okay, or like you could look at this positive part, um, and not just you know, push him away farther because he just wanted to express that and to be heard. So that was my goal for that day is, is just to allow him to express that and really hear him. If you want him to be able to move forward and not get bogged down with those feelings, it's not about showing him the positive, but allowing him to get that off his chest so then he can start to look at the other parts of the world and see what positive things there are maybe. But yeah, that happens every day. Yeah, now negative emotions are considered some kind of pathology. Especially aggression, I think. Mm. You know. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's I mean they're called negative emotions. emotions. <laughs> I mean, why are they right. negative? Why is one positive, one's negative? Right, they're just emotions, exactly. Yeah. But it's okay to sneak behind a person's back and do it, as long as you don't do it to their face. Right. right. <laughs> yeah, that's the emotions. That's, that's, that's the present state of affairs, yes. Mm-hmm. yes. We're anonymous online instead of, you know, in person, you know. Are there any other 
thoughts you you may have about you know, the, the afterall any other aspects that maybe we had not looked at I'd be curious to know if there was any response from other clinicians or doctors or medical staff members that may have taken notice to the um, extraordinary relief that this young they, woman they, had. They, like, they see it or were they blocked? They noticed that and those who knew that I was doing that kind of work may, may have appreciated that. But because in those days, how we talk about the, uh, the therapy I was doing, uh, there, there was some uh, appreciation of treatment for emotional problems and that this is something that can make a, a big difference in people's life. It's not just about uh, treating symptoms, but actually giving people the opportunity to be satisfied with their life and uh, enjoy their life. So that's, we want to be on the radar and people know that there is something different. How do you feel after listening to this case and discussion? What do you think? I thought the audience had great questions and I was particularly moved by one woman who told us about her own life experience and what a dramatic constricting effect just a few cruel words had on her. I can't wait to get back to in-person events where we can have more small group discussions but in the meantime, I hope you'll check out one of our live monthly webinars. You can connect with us at orgonomy.org or a different kind of psychiatry.com. If you like our work, be sure to leave a rating and review. The best way to help the ACO spread its knowledge is by letting others know about us. I'm Dr. Chris Burrett. Thank you for listening to In Contact with the ACO. Since 1968, the psychiatrists affiliated with the American College of Orgonomy have been helping patients discover greater satisfaction, health, and overall well-being in their lives. Whether patients suffer with mental illness, struggle with addiction, or feel unsatisfied with their work lives or relationships, medical orgone therapy, as practiced by the physicians at the ACO, offers a way forward, often without the use of medication.